0: This is the Master of Cinema cast. My name's Tom Jennings. And I'm Joachim Thiessen. And joining us today uh, from America and possibly, I think, a podcaster who Joachim and I both have um, been following for a long time. I'm certainly one of, a massive fan of his blog. And it's David Blakesley from The Eclipse Viewer and Regular Computer to the Criterion cast. David, thank you so much for coming on board with us today.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is a real exciting opportunity for me to connect with you guys. I certainly enjoyed listening to the Masters of Cinema cast uh, over the last couple months and then kind of especially recently digging in, uh, getting kind of in tune with your vibe and uh, really glad to be talking to you and also your audience as we get ready to delve into the world of Ozu.
0: Yeah, and I'm hoping one of the things you can do is um, give us a bit of an education on Ozu <laughs> and tell us tell us why we should kind of revere him. Because as we will get to, I suppose, in the episode when we talk about floating weeds, um, I think it's certainly something which uh, perhaps Yurakim and I do struggle a little bit with, I think, having kind of compared our notes. But before we do dig into that, um, Yurakim, what's been going on in the world of master Cinema?
2: Okay, so on May the 28th, uh, Masters of Cinema, they uh, tweeted out two new um, news. The first news is that they have acquired a new film. Uh, This is a new director to the Masters of Cinema series, and it is Antonio Campos' Simon Killer, which uh, Eureka Entertainment, they have uh, distributed theatrically, and I think they were going to distribute it on DVD, but they decided to um, make it be a part of the Masters of Cinema series. So the DVD and the Blu-ray is planned for an August release.
0: And have you, have you, you actually seen this film? I have not.
1: No, nor have I.
0: Um, it's got, it has got a pretty brilliant poster, and it. It, mm. it reminds me of something like you know some kind of like 70s science fiction film something like demon seed or something like that or you know one of the kind of the the poster from you know 2001 with the eye but i i watched the trailer today and i just i know you can't really judge a film by its trailer to an extent but i don't think i've ever been so uninterested in a trailer in all my life it just this film <laughs> it, i I, I, know, I know it just sounds so bad but i was just was like thinking i was like i, I really can't see myself kind of um, having much desire to see this at all. But yeah, we'll still see. Like I said, you can't really kind of
2: judge a film by its trailer. But um, what else have we have got in the world of re-releases as well coming up? They have announced that the uh, June releases, the Kuroneko and Naked Island and Taboo, is now available for pre-order. And they had a special offer where you can order... All of these three releases together and then you would get a, a copy of uh, toshio matsumoto's funeral parade of roses on dvd for free but that expired the 4th of june but um if you followed us on facebook or tumblr or twitter you would uh, be able to catch these news and
0: have you, have you seen any of those three films
1: i've seen the naked island yeah i, I would I saw it on the uh, Hulu Plus channel here in the States uh that Criterion uh runs and uh, that's a that's an excellent movie very minimalistic very stark but uh very very powerful it's it's kind of a a survivalist story if you will about this uh and poor poor family of farmers that lives on this island that there's no natural occurring water so they have to Paddle their boat in from the into the harbor every day and carry buckets of water up this very steep trail, which is where they have their little farm. It doesn't even make sense as to why they try to farm this place, but they do. But it's it's got a very it's got a very stark power to it, and uh, uh, was very interested in, in Shindo. I, I did a uh, review on Criterion Cast of his final film called Postcard, uh, which is already almost a sort of. A uh, semi-autobiographical film about uh, his role as a survivor of a of a platoon of a hundred uh, conscripts in the very last days of World War II, where basically everybody who drafted knew that they were going to be sent to the front lines to die, but he, along with I think six or seven other guys out of this hundred, were assigned uh, maintenance duties in one of the you know, kind of bases in in you know behind uh, behind the home lines and so so he survived but he he survived with this incredible sense of guilt that you know ninety three of his brethren who were drafted alongside him all basically were sent uh, into the into the grind into the carnage and there's some echoes actually of some scenes in the naked island. Uh, that come back in his final film, and he directed that film when he was a hundred years old, so imagine that oh what God. a what a life yeah, not only did he survive World War two but he lived to be one hundred years old.
0: <laughs> that Crazy. must be surely some kind of record for directing uh, a film
1: yeah yeah he was he was nearly blind and had a lot of obviously a lot of assistance uh but this was his story, this was his swan song and a really I don't think it's it's I don't think it's been a direct released in America. It was a film festival screener that I got from the uh, 2012 Portland Film Festival. Uh, so you can look it up on Criterion Cast if you want to know more about that film. But uh, like I say, The Naked Island was kind of his breakthrough. It wasn't his first film, but it was the one that really kind of made him sort of a name to be reckoned with in in uh, early 60s Japanese cinema. And I'm very excited that uh, Masters of Cinema has gotten the rights to this, and I certainly hope that Criterion will will uh, uh, follow suit and uh, get a copy of it uh, on disc so that we can watch it, perhaps with some nice supplemental features.
2: The other release uh, that is uh, coming in June, Kuroneko, is also a uh, Shindo release. And yeah. uh, that is the one that I've seen. And uh, it's kind of a weird, like, ghost movie with uh, a woman turning into a cat. <laughs> it is uh, a, like a revenge story on samurai that um, rape and pillage uh, some... Um, some family in the in the fields
0: yeah i mean i've seen yeah i've seen all of those i mean the, the one i'm really looking for is taboo actually i think that's one of my favorite um Murnau films and um i'm kind of quite interested to see you know the kind of the, the jump up in quality on the blu-ray on that one i think it's uh i think I, I think my copy should actually arrive on monday so i will post some pictures up of that as well because it's certainly uh you know, it's a pretty incredible film just have interest have you to seen the film that came out last year called taboo as well which was kind of based on this film
2: I have not seen it yet um I have it available, but I've not been able to see it.
1: I have not seen it
0: I definitely well worth checking out. It is one of the um it's a Portuguese film um directed by a guy called Miguel Gomez and um it kind of the first kind of part of it takes part in sort of the modern day and then it kind of goes back into kind of colonial Africa in the sixties and it's kind of really is a film of two very distinct halves, but the second half is completely silent and um it's yeah very odd little film but um certainly well worth checking out i mean it's if i had watched it like, I, it came out last year if i had watched it last year it would definitely have been in my kind of top 10 for the year it's a really kind of fantastic film the blu-ray is absolutely incredible as well so if you get the chance if it comes on like you know netflix or anything like that do check it out okay before we kind of get started then david um can you just tell us about kind of like what you know like kind of the shows do and the kind of the yeah, your blog and all sure. that kind of
1: thing Okay, well, let me go back to sort of my interest in blogging, which kind of got all these other things started. It's a blog called Criterion Reflections. It was uh, a blog I started back in 2008 when I was just wanted to start sort of capturing some of my impressions and thoughts on this growing collection of Criterion DVDs that I uh, was beginning to accumulate at the time. And then uh, in late 2008, I came up with this idea that I would uh, – go through the entire collection in chronological order starting with the earliest film which i think at the time and maybe still is nanook of the north uh the joseph flaherty documentary and uh and and basically i i created this spreadsheet where i would list all the criterion uh titles according to their original theatrical release date and i just sequenced them up and said i'll just kind of give myself an education in the history of cinema as uh, sort of interpreted through the Criterion for, uh, collection. And it was, I, I, I will admit, I, I kind of took the idea from a blog called The Criterion Contraption by Matthew Desham, where he was going through the Criterion films in spine number order. So he started with, you know, Grand Illusion and, you know, went down to Seven Samurai and all the way up the sequence. And, uh, you know, he's... Um, He's an excellent writer, very smart, very witty guy. Uh, I think he's kind of run out of steam. I don't think he's posted anything since the end of last year, and he's only up to the low 100s now. But uh, I've got over 400 reviews uh, that I've written over the past few years, uh, <laughs> both for my blog, uh, which uh, began in the nineteen uh, 1921, whenever Nando came out, whatever that was, and is now up to 1963. Uh, I just posted on... Uh, uh, the organizer uh, I will be writing about Jean-Luc Godard's contempt uh, next on that blog but then in 2010 uh, Ryan Gallagher uh, who I had already made some connections with because he of course he's just like this voracious and uh, web sweeper of all things criterion related <laughs> and he of course found my blog and we just struck up a conversation and I actually did a guest spot on their podcast for uh, Jean Renoir's Boudou Saved from Drowning uh, which I think is still exists in the archive But it's a terrible audio recording because I had a a horrible microphone. I had no idea what I was doing with podcasting, so it's it's a blemish on my record. I'll just say, but that that just created a friendship between me and Ryan. And then uh, that May in 2010, he asked if I would be interested in doing a column or some kind of regular contribution to the website, and that's where I came up with the idea that I would use. Kind of some space on that site to talk about the Eclipse series, which I'd also become to uh, collect and acquire. So I did the Journey Through the Eclipse series, where I was not just writing about the whole box set. Uh, it's just typically how these films are reviewed, but I would just take one film out of a box set and uh, just write it up as a as a standalone movie review, recognizing that that's how all these Eclipse films were originally released was as a as a film to be reckoned in its own right, not as one paragraph. Uh, you know, just summing up. You uh, know capsule review like that so that became kind of a weekly thing that i did and then uh uh, as I guess it was last year, uh, Robert Nishimura, a friend of the Criterion cast, he's a graphic designer, uh very talented guy. He lives over in Japan now, but he's actually got roots in Panama as well as here in the States. Uh, he and I started kind of conversing behind the scenes, and we came up with the idea of doing a podcast dedicated to the Eclipse films where we would kind of go back to that format of talking about a whole box set uh, in one episode. And so we we fel- uh, recorded... uh I think six or seven episodes uh, for the last half of 2012 and had every intention to just keep plowing ahead. Uh, And then some things happened that kind of threw us off the tracks for a little while. Um, And uh, I do have some good news to report, which is that next weekend, uh, I think like next Saturday, six days from now, Rob and I are going to get on Skype and kind of pick up where we left off, which is talking about uh, Jean-Pierre Gorin box set, Uh, Mm -hmm. three films that he created after his collaborations with Godard, uh, all based in Southern California. And uh, that's what we at last announced what we were going to do next. And Rob's been doing some very interesting uh, work uh, on his own hand, he's really the technical wizard uh, behind this show, and some developments in his business life and also more recently in his in his family have have kind of forced him to shift priorities in other directions, but uh, I'm very excited and very pleased to announce here that uh, the Eclipse Viewer uh, is on its way back, and it will be... Better than ever with some new, interesting <laughs> surprises. So I'm very, very uh, much looking forward to getting that thing going because I, I really enjoyed the uh, that dynamic that we got going there, and uh, I, I love giving the Eclipse series uh, any kind of publicity and, and uh, maybe stoking some curiosity because I think it's a very unique uh, format. Uh, it is. It is a, of course DVD only, and some people say, "Well, I only want Blu-rays nowadays." But uh, you know, some of these films don't necessarily need the full 1080p. You know. Uh, bells and whistles, that, but they're hmm. very worth seeing, and uh, I think they deliver a lot of bang for the buck, although obviously a, a, a box that's going to cost you a little bit more than a single film. And,
2: uh, deep. I'm really looking forward to listening to your uh, new Eclipse Viewer episodes because I've been, I've been listening since day one, so yes, yes. I really enjoy your uh, correspondence back and forth and uh, I just uh, like your insights and Listening to your episodes and then going on Hulu Plus to watch the movies afterwards. And, yeah, uh, um, thanks. Yeah, it's
1: been enjoyable. Well, we really envisioned the uh, the Eclipse viewer as as a supplement to those series. That, that's our goal, at least. Maybe it sounds a little ambitious, or or even. Uh, you know, presumptuous, but, uh, you know, the Eclipse viewer, or the Eclipse series, those films are bare bones. All you get is the liner hmm. notes. There's no supplements, no trailers, uh, nothing ex- extra. But so, so we really want to create something that would almost serve as that supplemental bonus disc or, or, uh, you know, extra track, uh, that would help bring these films to life. And so we, we do set us high standard. So we may not, you know, create as many episodes uh as as we'd like since we both have uh, full-time jobs and families and all that but we want to put a good product out there so we're going to strive to keep the standards high
0: yeah i mean i i just kind of weighed in on that i mean i i i, I love those eclipse box sets and um i was having a bit of a a, a conflap with someone the other day actually and they were saying that they weren't going to kind of pick them up anymore like like you're saying because they're not on blu-ray and my kind of comments to, to the person was like well DVD you know, DVD's still good quality. You know, it's yeah. not, you know, I, 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 mean, I watched, um, a, 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 just for, a, for a laugh the other day, actually, I went around a friend's house and he said I had a VHS player and we put on a video and my jaw was on the floor. I was, I was like, H- how on earth was this ever good? <laughs> 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 you know, and I, I just like, this is, it's unbelievable. And then I remember, you know, I, I remember when, you know, the first DVD started, players started appearing and you look at them and you're like, it's like, going up to the monolith in 2001 in awe of how good the, the quality is. And I, I don't get that complaint, you know, they oh they should be on Blu-ray, and I think you know, if, if they go onto Blu-ray, the price point's going to go up as well, and, you know, would it even be worth, you know, would the criterion sell enough of them to actually make it economically worthwhile doing? So, you know, as a kind of a a supplement to the, you know, the Criterion collection. I love those, um, Eclipse box sets and you know, there's some fantastic deals out there as well. And some of the films you can get on them and stuff like that. And, you know, certainly I think the the Eclipse Review podcast, it's certainly one of my biggest scenes that one of, is as I, I buy all these Criterion films, I buy the Eclipse for box sets as well and sometimes i don't watch them for months on end right and i think when you have you know when there's a podcast out there where it's so keen I, I found myself going back to them and watching them a lot more you know, kind of having listened to your episodes and things like that and i you know, yeah I echo Joachim's words really i think it's a fantastic podcast you know i'm really glad it's coming back as well
1: well thank you very much that, that's really encouraging I, I do want to thank anybody who's listening i mean other people have sent us similar feedback and that that means a lot to us and that definitely uh, will will challenge us to kind of keep keep uh you know, keep our efforts uh, focused, and uh you know, hopefully, people will continue to enjoy as we take this in some some new and interesting directions.
0: No, oh, good stuff! So, is there anything else, Yoakim, you want to add? No, that's pretty much it. So, on this on this week's episode, our feature film is going to be Spine Number Forty-One, which is Yasuo Ozu's 1959 film, Floating Weeds. <laughs>
2: でうちにあの人よし。
1: Before
0: I kind of want to get get into kind of the synopsis and kind of what we think about the film, I just want to go around really and kind of ask you all, what, what are your kind of opinions on Ozu and when was it you kind of like kind of got into his films and how many have you seen and how do you kind of feel about them? And I suppose we kind of start with you, David, because I suppose you might be the kind of the foremost uh, on this one.
1: Well, yeah, okay. My my exposure to Ozu probably goes back to around I don't know two thousand five, two thousand six, when I first watched Tokyo Story. Which, and again, I I did not grow up as a cinephile. I, I saw I've seen oddball movies over the years, but you know most of the, you know, 80s and 90s. I, you know, I'm 52 years old or 51 years old. will be 52 soon. But, um, you know, I, I just raised my kids, lived in suburbia, and just went to movies and just was always ooing and eyeing at the latest, you know, spectacles, whatever Hollywood sent my way. But, you know, as I got a little bit older, started kind of discovering the art house thing. And so I am a little bit late to the scene, if you will, think about my experience of life. Uh, but, you know, I, I would see Tokyo Story. as like, Really at the top of these critics' polls of all-time greatest films, and it's like, well, you know, I've seen Seven Samurai, and I've seen The Godfather, and I've seen Citizen Kane, as well, and, and and Tokyo Story is supposed to be better than them, yeah. You know, wow, this is going to be fantastic. And I remember watching it, it's like, well, that was touching, <laughs> but but you know, not really didn't blow me away. Like, what would make this so high uh, on the register there? Um, but I I have gone through Ozu's career pretty much from the earliest surviving films all the way to the end. There's a few spots in, in between that I haven't seen some of those films yet. But I do believe I've got a pretty good insight now as to what makes Ozu's film so sublime. And I guess my biggest disagreement with the consensus that Tokyo Story is his best film is that I don't I think it's not that exceptional. I think it's just part of a body of work and they just had to choose something to sort of epitomize ozu because these these lists always of course pick out particular films I don't see Tokyo story as particularly you know the the pinnacle in fact I think his his career builds to an incredible uh, though subtle crescendo in these late color films of which you know floating weeds is, is one of them Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, what is it that makes Ozu so special? I think he creates a, a cinematic realm, if you will, or a milieu that is is very unique because of the discipline, because of the consistency, uh, because uh, the, you know, the a very refined aesthetic that you sort of just have to settle into and come to appreciate in the same way that you might appreciate uh zen uh calligraphy or or zen floral arranging it's like you know oh that's a big loop in ink with a brush or that's a you know very elegant poised you know flower arrangement or a rock garden or whatever there is very much a zen sensibility to what ozu does although of course it's full of common life it's not as maybe tranquil or serene or as as uh aesthetically, you know, austere as as classic Zen is when we think about that, you know, philosophy of life. But I think Ozu's uh, Zen comes through just in terms of his contemplative look at human nature and relationships. And he focuses in a family setting, but from film to film over the course of these, you know, very pivotal decades of Japanese history from the, you know, really like the late 20s, early 30s, through the war years, through the post-war years, where this nation had really been shattered, then rebuilt and rediscovered something about itself through this traumatic, you know, cultural experience, Ozu's there documenting ordinary Japanese life, um, in a very contemporary "here's where we're at right now" sense, whereas filmmakers like Kurosawa and Mizuguchi are going, you know, back into Japan's uh, fabled history and and drawing lessons from the past that they applied to today, as well as filming, you know, contemporary dramas with with big, powerful themes. But, you know, yeah, Ozu's films are very, you know, he, one of his films is titled The Flavor of Green Tea Over Rice. It's very, very bland on the one hand, but very subtle. And, and you, so you have to have sort of a refined sensitivity to appreciate the distinctions in there. And of course, when you start talking like that, you sound like this kind of pompous prick, you know, like "Oh, I get it," <laughs> yeah. you know. But but do, do, yeah, are, yeah. I, are you are you uh, uh, sensitive enough? Do you do you have the discreet uh, palate to 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 see the wisdom <laughs> and the profundity in this, you know? So you can get very snobby and elitist sounding uh, very quickly when you start talking like this. So I better hush up for a moment. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, I have um, little experience with uh, Osu yeah. films. I've seen uh, mm-hmm. the um, Eclipse set, the silent Osu films, mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. listening to David and Robert's uh, Eclipse of episode. Um, and uh, I really love those films, especially the mm-hmm. I Was Born But uh, film. Yeah,
1: there, there's a feistiness to him. He's still a very yeah. young, scrappy filmmaker who's, you know, just he's kind of grabbing life by the collar in his own mm. way. And these later films you know there's definitely a more uh settled feel to them
2: it feels very much uh, like a a disciplined approach to each film. Oh, yeah. He's very, very more quiet and uh, much more small, small scope. Mm-hmm. Um, the films he made in the later years, I feel, and I haven't, I haven't really watched any of his uh, later films. So this is my first uh, Ozu film that is post 1930s and in sound and color. Now.
1: A lot had happened in both Ozu's life, and 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 really, I think if you want to get into Ozu's prime time, I would say start with uh, late spring which is, that's the one uh, Ozu film that's available on Blu-ray through the Criterion Collection. Hmm. That's really the, kind of the the first big post-war film where he really hit his stride. And he made three films that are commonly referred to as the the Noriko trilogy because uh, the same actress, Setsuko Hara, one of the great icons of, of, Japanese cinema, a great female actress who's still alive, I believe. And she's like maybe in her late 80s or 90s, but a beautiful woman, very sensitive, uh, compassionate, full of heart, uh, uh, Portrayer of her characters. In each of these three films, she plays a woman named Noriko, even though they're not the same person, and there's no real connection between the stories. But, but uh, uh, Late Spring, uh, Early Summer, and then Tokyo Story are the three that are kind of if, if you want to put him up there as, as the, the the pinnacle of Ozu's career uh, in a certain sense, those are probably the three that you would want to start with. And I'd say go to late spring, then early summer, then Tokyo Story, but then continue the quest through into the color films because he does some interesting things, including here in Floating Weeds, with, with color, uh, taking his compositions in new directions, of course with some talented uh, crew behind him, uh, Yeah, so I guess that's my comment as far as what's happening here. Uh, Ozu also, there's a socioeconomic progression. Uh, the, the 30s films that we talked about in the Silent Ozu set, as well as a story of floating weeds, which this film that we're about to talk about is a remake film from that same year. I mean, a story of floating weeds very much would have been right in that Silent Ozu box, except it had already been released as a, as a disc two and this yeah. Criterion package. Uh, so he took the same story and, and recast it. But uh, in the in the 50s now, Japan's becoming a little bit more economically prosperous. Ozu himself, of course, was definitely much more a director of prestige and, and and fame. And, you know, people would come to his films as an event because, oh, the great Ozu has released another film. And they enjoyed his take on Japanese life. But he, he really is dealing primarily with the middle class in fact, Floating Weeds is kind of distinctive in this, in this part of his career because it's probably the last time he ever dealt with kind of the scruffier, lower-income side of things. If you go to the other films, uh, it's really middle-class or upper-middle-class people and their, uh, and their problems, whereas this is a little bit more down and dirty, down in the trenches of uh, the lives of, of poorer people uh, whose future is not quite as secured.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I, I mean, I I think just kind of echoes what David said there. Actually, when I when I went to university and studied film studies, and we were t- our introduction by our lecturer on Ozu was he put on Tokyo Story and was like, "This is one of the best films ever made." And
2: when you when <laughs> you say, yeah, when you have
0: mm-hmm. that, yeah, when you have this sort of like you know, kind of like I suppose expectation of someone saying that, and what what kind of marred my kind of um, enjoyment of Tokyo Stories was the film we'd seen before earlier in the day was romancing the stone and so you (laughs) go from you go from you go from romancing the stone to tokyo story which is of billed as being the best film ever and i suddenly thought and i sat there about halfway through it i I turned to my friend and i was like what is is anything actually happened yet or what you know and i I, I remember sort of thinking what perhaps i was so kind of like into kind of like michael douglas and you know the the brilliant film that is *Romancing the Stone*, but it was such. I, I just sat there thinking, "What? What is this?" And I, I didn't really get it, and it kind of put me off for years, really, mm-hmm. from going back to his work. And then when I started going back into the um, the Criterion Collection, kind of picking up those discs, you know, um, I'd watched these films, and I thought to myself, I, "I almost, I was getting frustrated almost because I couldn't get into them, and I couldn't appreciate, I couldn't see what the fuss was about." And it, it was strange because i kind of i think about when my kind of i got into andre tarkovsky films i think it's taken me about 15 years to finally say i can appreciate andre tarkovsky films i certainly don't enjoy them i don't think anyone could enjoy stalker you know if <laughs> you would if someone said to me that oh that's like you know a rollicking fast i know you're lying <laughs> and the <laughs> thing about kind of ozu is i'm sort of it i'm still waiting for that moment where i can kind of like tune into it and say right you know i'm with this now i can get it and it Certainly, I think Floating Weeds, as I was talking about in a bit, has, has helped, I think, kind of facilitate that move into thinking, right, you know, I can now, go, I think I want to go back to these earlier films again mm-hmm. and see them again, you know, try and kind of unpick them and try and think about them a little bit more than I was before. But, yeah, it's, it's one of those ones where, because he is held in such high regard and, you know, for whatever, you know, I do consider myself to be a cinephile and you you want to kind of be the kind of, like, like, you know, you you don't want to veer into the realm of pretension, but you know, Mm -hmm. I would like to say, you know, I, you know, I get I Ozu and I, you know, I really enjoy it. I don't think I can really, I don't I think I'd be disingenuous if I was to say that at the moment. And uh, But I, I certainly think in time, you know, I might be able to sort of say, yeah, right. You know, I get this now. I can appreciate it. I can enjoy it for what it is, but you know, it's, it's a tough I think it's a tough one sometimes when you have that kind of expectation really for a director or an artist
2: I was suffering from the same thing that mm-hmm. um I was reading uh, like um Roger, but he's uh, written a review on floating wheat and he holds it in his top five I think or at least top 10 films of all time and you get this certain impression of uh that you're going to see a masterpiece when you see this film and I don't know uh, <laughs> I do enjoy it, but I feel that you have to be, you have to be knowledgeable about Osu as a filmmaker and where Osu has been and where he's going to fully appreciate this, uh, this film, I feel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think also your, your life experience. I mean, I don't need to get into your guys' personal lives or, you know, where you're <laughs> with your relationships. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a father. I've, I've raised children. I've been married for 20 odd years now. And so, You know, just life experience brings you into situations where a lot of the dynamics and tensions in these Ozu kind of family-oriented dramas, well, yeah, you can relate to situations in various Hmm. ways that he's portraying, although... You know, he's definitely speaking about Japanese society in really almost like in the year in which this film was made. All of his films are very much set in the in the moment; they're not going back a few years or you know in a sort of alternate universe or anything like that. They're all just based on how people are living, and yeah, his films also have a very universal feel. Uh, but that's assuming that you know you, you've had life experiences that you know uh, you know you've you've had past relationships where maybe you still harbor a little feeling or, or, you know, you you wish kind of you could have gone back and done things differently and, and now you see that person uh, or, or you know, there's jealousies, there's rivalries. It's it's all small potato stuff in terms of what we usually go to the movies for. You know, there's no <laughs> alien invasions or, you know, apocalyptic death machines about to you know, melt the core <laughs> of the planet down here. I was waiting for that
0: one. It's really quite interesting you should say that, David, actually, because um, – uh, Last Saturday, I actually broke up with my girlfriend of seven years. Yeah. and I think this might be why. When I was watching Floating Weeds, I was sort of thinking, oh, you know, they're kind of going back. Like, I spent at least Monday wondering where things had gone wrong and I was sort of watching Floating mm-hmm. Weeds. And like, like you said, I think having you know, experienced <laughs> that now. I think that's why I think it might have been my sort of backdoor into these films. And it's, it's yeah. a, a, very interesting that you should say kind of like life experience because obviously mine's, you know, turned on its head, I suppose, the past, you know, it's been quite yeah. a strange week, I suppose. And it's, yeah, it's, mm. you're completely right. I think it is one of those, which is why I think perhaps you know, with Tarkovsky, you know, any kind of filmmaker it's taken me a while to get into, you suddenly, you look back at yourself when you're 18 and, you know, I'm now 33 and you sort of think, think to yourself, what I've done and seen and experienced in those years is absolutely immense and uh, yeah certainly you know I think that's
2: part of life isn't it really I suppose It's interesting that you mentioned Tarkovsky because I had the exact same idea that uh, because he's the same uh, I had the same experience with him where it took me like uh, seven years before I could really appreciate uh, something like Solaris or Mm -hmm.
1: some.
2: so it's just I feel that you have to struggle your way through the first experience and then you can go back to it and go back to it and just find more stuff. And I feel like Floating Weeds is a film that I will appreciate more and more each time I view it. So
1: Yeah, there's there's clearly... Go ahead, Tom.
0: No, so no, I was going to say, Joachim, you know, just break up with your girlfriend, and yeah, you'll have all the pain and anger of regret oh, yeah. to, uh, to bring I, I've into been the film. I'm in there,
1: so I'm in there. <laughs> yeah, give your give yourself something to regret, and all of a sudden it'll all make sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the you know the, you know there's clearly I think any attentive uh, cinephile, even if they're brand new to Ozu, will see that there's a very sharp intelligence wor- at work in these films. But uh, you know the other, and I think Tarkovsky is a great name to kind of uh, reference here because yeah, you're right. There's there's an obtuseness almost or an opaqueness that you've gotta work through to kind of get on hmm. their white wa- wavelength. Um, uh, Paul Schrader of course wrote a famous book uh, linking Ozu with Robert Brosson and Carl Theodore Dreyer, two other sort of transcendental filmmakers where the 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 filmmaking is very measured pace, not a lot of overt action. The developments just kind of sneak up on you and all of a sudden you realize oh my god something really profound and heavy just happened here you know a significant loss a grief a breakup a, uh a departure uh, but it's not you know there's no dramatic swelling of the music to kind of hit you over the head and say oh tragedy cry now you know it's, it's just <laughs> yeah. kind of you've got to sort of be engaged in the realm and then sort of you know empathize with these characters and just realize oh that that just really crushed them, or, or, or you know maybe something pleasant happened, but you know typically Ozu's films are, you know bittersweet with a little more emphasis on the bitter than the sweet, and uh, again that's just you know it's a cultivated taste uh, that that uh it it comes in time, and I think especially as you sort of immerse yourself, and I would say, uh, you know, a fair number of people have done this. They'll just take a month or so to just rack up as many Ozu films as they can, and I, and I do think that there's some merit in watching them in chronological order, and even if yeah. you just want to go that post-war, like I say, from late spring through to uh, his final film in Autumn Afternoon, or if you want to go back into the silence. They're a little bit harder to find, but uh, you can make the full journey if you want to do it that way.
0: No, definitely, and I suppose, you yeah. know, I mean I could talk a little bit more now about sure. like the kind of the the, the the story of kind of floating weeks yeah. because I mean it's a fairly simple story isn't it we mm-hmm. have this kind of group of actors returning to a small seaside town and we have the kind of the the kind of the master of the troupe um, you're going to have to help me as well I am useless at pronouncing names and foreign I, names I think I we are are can just of...
1: call him the master you know that, yeah the master
0: much... i suppose mm-hmm. and he yeah he returns to seaside town and they're going to put on a few performances with his troupe. And he kind of goes back to the house of his former lover, and they have a son who's kind of, is he like 18 or something? I think. I yeah, I he's, he's in the his exact.
1: late teens, 17, 18, something like that. Mm-hmm. Still in high yeah, school, and, still in high school, definitely thinking about college.
0: Yeah. And the kid doesn't know that he's his father, and he thinks that he's his uncle. Mm-hmm. And really, the I suppose the crux of the story really kind of comes from his, the master's current mistress, who just kind of really is kind of, Destroyed by jealousy, who basically tries to kind of upset things by getting one of the other girls in the troop, a girl called Keo, to seduce his son. And I'm I'm not quite sure what she's trying to achieve by the seduction, but we can kind of talk about that in a minute. But in a nutshell, that is really the story spread out over Mm -hmm. kind of two hours. Mm -hmm. And.
1: So well, okay. I mean, I guess I'll I'll sort of summarize a slightly differently. I mean, you're right. There's a, this right. troop that comes in, and and uh, the master, uh, unbeknownst to everybody else in his troop, has a very ulterior motive. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this is a group of traveling actors. They put on this kind of old-fashioned and really kind of hokey kabuki theater, and uh, you know, it's, it's it's it. Ozu has a little bit of fun at the expense of of just kind of showing this really kind of grungy, you know, third-rate troupe of actors. They just kind of put on this little schmaltzy performance. But they're in a little bitty harbor town. There's really no commercial prospects. And the only reason they are there is that the master has just kind of given into his own kind of self-indulgent desire to reconnect with this old lover but really not even so much her it's his son he knows he has a son in this town he knows his son is right on the brink of manhood coming of age and he's just going to manipulate the whole set of circumstances for his troop to come to this town so that he has a chance to hang out with his boy who again (laughs) he still identifies to him as as uncle the son is is presumably the nephew and and really and, and as a result the whole troop is brought to ruin because there's not enough business in this town to keep the theater going or to even pay them all a decent salary. So, you know, you, you don't maybe get that until after you've watched the movie or thought about it or maybe you've watched it a second time. But that's that's really the the tension here is that this this uh, selfish old bastard is basically you know bringing his crew <laughs> into financial uh, distress uh, so that he can uh, you know exercise this this uh, whim which ends up blowing up. Terribly in his face because his secret gets out. Uh, the and uh, kind of spoiling the end here, but but the uh, son realizes and, and learns through this whole imbroglio that that uh, he's being deceived as well uh, by his his mother who told him from his child earliest childhood that oh your father died a long time ago uh, when that was not the case and so this young man kind of coming of age is just realizing adults are just a bunch of scheming manipulators and uh, and of course the the master who is expecting perhaps this happy reunion and Wanted. Never had any intention of disclosing his true identity. He just wanted to see the boy, you know, all grown up, and then move on. But uh, now he's in disgrace because, uh, you know, he's he's really blown it with with his son uh, when, once this ruse is discovered. And so, the floating weeds is kind of a metaphor for these rootless uh, traveling actors who really are just living hand to mouth and uh, you know don't really have a whole lot to show for it at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I mean the title of the film is—I mean, you no, know, floating weeds. I mean, weeds aren't sort of—they're the kind of things you destroy that ruin your garden, aren't they? Mm-hmm. It's that it's the, you know. It's, it's, I was going I when you kind of—I was thinking, oh yeah, it's just kind of like romantic. No, it's not really at all, is it? It's you know, it's quite a—it's it's a pretty kind of melancholic title. But I mean, talking about the master, and I think it's kind of a, the, the best place really to start is with this character because. The film for the first half, it's quite jaunty, isn't it? It's got oh, this yeah. sort of kind of quite quite kind of upbeat score, and there's some flashes of kind of humor in it. There's, oh, yeah. You know, you sort of thinking, you know, this is going to be like a kind of a, you know, I was expecting, a, a, I guess, a sort of a, well, what I actually thought was going to happen, it would be about kind of the master and his lover kind of settling down and deciding to raise a child, and yeah, it'd mm. be this kind of like mm-hmm. almost kind of, you know, kind of Canterbury Tales esque kind of bawdy tale. And then it dawned on me very, very quickly that this guy is, he's an absolute bastard (laughs) of the highest order. And and I think it's kind of, yeah, one of the things I I do appreciate, it doesn't sort of, it's so subtle the way he is. And I sat there, I kept pausing the film going, hang on a minute, did he just say that? Mm. And is he actually having a go at his own son for being selfish, for wanting to go to college because that means his mother will be alone? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And you sort of sat there thinking, this guy's unbelievable. And when you have a protagonist like that, I mean, do you find it hard to kind of get into films when the kind of the, the lead character is that sort of I don't so despicable in a way, you know, you see seen
1: Well, the you know, the, the, the theme of younger children departing, departing ways with their elderly parents runs through all of these films of Ozus. I mean the majority, if not the absolute, you know, full run of them, have something to do with an elderly parent who has to cope with the fact that uh, they will soon be alone in this world without even a child to to provide daily companionship. So that's just one of the variations that uh, Floating Weeds does a little differently than some of those other films, including the the Noriko films that I was talking about earlier. Um, But, yeah, yeah, the the, um, very flawed motives and characteristics of all these characters. That That's another very common theme is that very seldom does Ozu have characters who are just... Uh, you know completely likable even even uh, the Setsuko Hara film uh, roles where she's she is she's this beautiful compassionate woman uh kind of a a paragon of japanese femininity if you will uh but even she has you know, her she and her performances there's that little dark thread that comes through in in several of them and and so yeah that that's that's the poignancy of it is that even and, and and you you have to relate that to yourself. I mean, I think of myself as a pretty good guy, but I also know that I have self-serving, <laughs> egotistical motives, and sometimes <laughs> I will I will position myself so that people have to do things that they'd rather not uh, <laughs> on my behalf. I mean, that's just that's just honesty, you know. That's yeah. how people are. <laughs> and Ozu captures that with great distinction. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. You're asking what your kind of thoughts on this guy.
2: The more I watch the film, I think I've seen the film three times now in uh, the last week or so, and it just it keeps on growing. Just how despicable this character <laughs> is, yeah. mm-hmm. and you you just realize how much he's manipulating everyone around him. And especially on second viewing, I realized that the only reason they're going to this island is because, as you said, that he wants to see his son, and that's not really something you pick up on the first viewing. I feel, but it's just this grand scheme of his of trying to like breeze in and be the father of the family basically, and trying to forget the past and just, just take over as the head of the family and try to, um, push the son in the right direction. And I feel like there's this, uh, dichotomy between the older generation and the new generation. And Mm -hmm. it seems to be like that there's less respect in the younger generation for this Kabuki theater and uh, this more traditional Japanese, uh, theatre and he seems to be more occupied with uh, western ideals
0: yeah I mean, I mean the thing about the theatres as well I mean what, what what kind of got me about that was he actually tells his own son not to come because it's so crap and then basically yeah. it's what does that say about the people that go
1: yeah. well he's, he's got a very condescending view towards his audience he's yeah. just they're just the suckers and he's out there taking their money you know hmm. uh, but but he, he has this uh, very uh, kind of arrogant presumption that you know through his son's you know presumed future successes his his kind of wasted life will somehow be redeemed he, i mean he's really kind of a, a last relic of japanese feudalism you know mm-hmm. the way he mm-hmm. treats the women is extremely chauvinistic uh you know he's got this young woman uh who you know she's very attractive uh, probably 20 years younger than he is if not even younger than that that he's kind of uh pulled out of a role as a prostitute, uh, whether she was uh, a geisha or just a street whore, I'm not really sure. But, you know, she's obviously a woman of, of some you know, physical and, and, and you, know, you know, facial attractiveness. And so he's helped her to become an actress, kind of his leading lady and also his lover. But, you know, it's almost like, you know, the sex and companionship mean nothing to him. It's just more about the kind of power and, and control that he has over... His company, and, and she is sort of the, the dominant female of the troupe, uh, you know, serves a very instrumental purpose in his schemes. And so he's going to browbeat her, and, and of course, in that crucial scene where, where uh, his current lover and, and his former mistress kind of confront each other, yeah, he's he's physically abusive and verbally abusive and and just horrible and completely indifferent to the you know to this uh, former lover of his who's been raising his child uh you know he's been sending money along i guess for his schooling and little child support but you know just very cavalier in terms of her her future prospects and uh you know with no real intentions of of continuing that relationship in any meaningful way so yeah he's yeah he's a despicable bastard no doubt about it
2: it seems to be that the, uh, the main reason that the scheming of Kayo, the, no, so, Sumiko, sorry, the lead actress and why yes. she's sending Kayo to, uh, the sun is because they're kind of viewed as, um, lower rate citizens, these uh, yeah. actresses. And if he is together with this young actress, his esteem will sort of, uh, fall to the, or it will be lowered, uh, through, it's, it's kind of a, um, the revenge. Reputa- yeah. yeah, revenge and the reputation of the entire family will be dragged down in the mud
1: through this relationship. Right, and and perhaps it will just break the relationship, so that uh, the master will no longer be tempted to go back and visit this kid anymore. Mm. You know, if he feels the kid is disgraced or gets hooked up with this low class uh, actress girl, uh, then you know, then all of a sudden his yeah you know, the master's uh, prospects are 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 thwarted and he can maybe focus a little bit more on her and that's kind of where the movie ends up actually you know uh, uh kayo and and the son are are still sort of together and uh yeah and then there's a kind of a, a reconciliation at least temporarily of the master and his lead actress there
0: yeah i think that the the, the, the but the, I said, I said so kind of the sadness of the film as well comes from the fact that you know, kind of the master at the end when he's kind of you know kind of veer into spoiler territory, but you, you get this feeling that there is never ever going to be resolution in this guy's life at all, right. and
1: the weeds will keep on floating. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, and it's yeah. you
0: know, and again, you know, it's it's a tragedy. It doesn't offer the kind of the sort of the nicely wrapped up. Perhaps you know comforting. You know everything's going to be fine in the end. Type ending, yeah. That that you would, that you, you know, perhaps you crave. I suppose.
1: Well, that's. I think that's what makes Ozu's films stand out because they are just anything but the Hollywood ending. I mean, in in their way, they're about some of the bleakest. You know, well, ain't that the shit? You know, kind of <laughs> conclusions of any film, especially of its era. I mean, Ozu loved American film. Yeah, I And just he say, was yeah. not anti Hollywood, but he certainly did not concede the hollywood ending by any means
2: one of the questions i had was uh, that both sumiko and kayo at the end of the film they both seem to want to be with uh komajuru the master mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it seems like they're, they're such sad characters that they yeah. they've been beaten throughout the film and they've been disgraced and they still want his uh, his word to just follow him And And I I just um, it's it leaves this little distaste in my mouth the way that Osu is treating women in this in this film, and he seems to have um, a much kinder eye to the master and how he's behaving through the film.
1: That's a good question, and I you know I wish I knew more. In fact. One of the things about the Masters of Cinema release, if we can sort of compare it a little bit there, is that it seems like a, a, there's a booklet with some passages from Ozu's diary, which I would yeah. love to read sometime. I don't know if he gets into that. He you gets
2: know, into a lot of drinking. That's right. <laughs> much <it. laughs> no, 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 I was going to go <laughs> well, on to
1: the drinking
0: in a bit, actually. Yeah, but, well,
1: uh, but let's talk a little bit about Ozu's view towards women. Like, was he reflecting the lot of women in Japanese society at that time, which – very much were second-class citizens. Mm. And was he basically exposing that and saying, have a heart, feel for these women? Or Mm. was he just operating under the same set of chauvinistic presumptions, uh, you know, that, you know, kind of misogynistic? I just, I don't know where Ozu's, kind of heart or perception of anything that we might consider feminism really is that. It, <clears throat> he, he portrays his female characters with a lot of sensitivity but they almost always wind up in some sort of subservient role getting married because that's the expected thing to do even though they just happily remain single and stay taking care of their elderly father but they sort of succumb to pressures and, and get married and then I, I, I guess I will give a little bit of benefit of the doubt again he's, he's not really a a propagandist or a political activist or anything like that. He, I think he's just looking at how women basically landed in in Japanese society. I mean, he, he never married very famously, lived with his mother. Uh, his mother passed away a a very short while before he himself died on his 60th birthday. So he did not live a very long life, at least by contemporary standards, but he was, of course, incredibly productive during those years as a filmmaker. Uh, But in some ways, he was very much a mama's boy, you know, and he never entered into Mm. the domestic relationships, which makes his insight into family dynamics all the more impressive because it was not part of his personal experience, but he was obviously very perceptive and, and uh, you know, paid close attention and probably, you know, benefited from, you know, the experiences of, of the people working around him who I would assume most of whom had more conventional, you know, family relationships than he did. So, uh, you know, there, there, definitely there's a, there's a lot that rankles with, uh, contemporary sensibilities seeing women having their arm twisted and slapped around and, and just standing there taking it and, and really not only just taking it but conceding and, and following mm. the order that they're given afterwards it's like man I'd want to I would like her to smack that guy back <laughs> up and, and just flip him off and head out the door you know But especially
2: that, that final scene where she's um, yeah. she's lighting that um, that match yeah. in front of him she's pleading yeah. I and mean, she's
1: really disgracing herself <laughs> very much so
0: no, I, I think I'm reviewed on that, but I think I'm more inclined to sort of say that these are kind of the they're sort of the, the victims of society. I think is it, more of a, you know, you can't really imagine them going down to the local women's institute and saying, look, you know, I'm, my husband's <laughs> treating me awfully, you know what I mean? It's, you know, what are we going to do about it? Well, we'll talk to social services and we'll get this sorted out for you, know. It doesn't seem, you know, it's not that kind of, I don't, it's not that society. Now. You know, I was trying to think when I was watching the film, because I, I, like Joachim, I, I was sort of thinking this is a slightly uncomfortable. It reminds me a bit of kind of, you know, the way james bond treats women to an extent and you know, yeah and i'm sort of watching and thinking and I, and I sort of thought to myself well you know i, I can't think of any film from the 50s japanese cinema from the 50s where you have like you know overly positive strong female characters you know i'm sure you know if you did a bit of digging you might do but you know, where you sort of and you know, certainly in the films that i've watched and i sort of thought to myself well you know i think this is more reflective of the times basically and i, I think he, yeah i think you encourage more to it makes it, it makes him seem worse the fact that these women don't do anything about it
2: not only that they don't do anything but it's, they seem to just want more and more and more because even after uh keijo is um, she has the chance to just stay with the son and she still asks him to take him take her with him and that, that was the kind of thing that mm. Mm, yeah reacted to yeah and uh, not only that but also that the master he seems to have he's he's, uh put in a more positive light throughout the film there's no question about that and we seem to want to smile with his character even though he's behaving quite despicably
1: yeah i think that's just the, the prerogative that uh authoritative men had at that time mm. and, and and I think Ozu himself was very much a member of the Japanese uh, bourgeois if you will. Uh, you can look at directors like Mizuguchi and Naruse who I think were more radical in their sensibility uh, and mm. more sympathetic toward women um, even though those those roles and, and their films uh, were definitely uh, proto-feminist I think in their perspectives. Uh, women still wound up kind of Having to bite the big one <laughs> in terms of that, you know, their lot in life, you know, uh, Mizoguchi and Naruse kind of exposed their plight and and really rendered them as very you know unduly suffering, very sympathetic characters that the audience says we got to do something about this. Uh, Ozu really wasn't out to sort of. Enact social reforms, I guess you could say. And then as far as Kurosawa is concerned, yeah, women are yeah. just like side decorations, you know, <laughs> potted plants <laughs> in his film. So I guess in some ways, Ozu, uh, Uh, is the middle round Uh, uh, Kaisuke kanoshita i'd like to see more of his films Uh, he did a film called 24 eyes it's in the criterion collection which is a very uh, very strong uh, anti-war critique of a woman who really held the line of kind of a pacifistic anti-militaristic values throughout the the pre-war you know the the japanese fascism the world war ii era and the and the life after the war the reconstruction era so in in some ways that might be one of the strongest uh you know positive strong woman films of that era that I, that comes to my mind uh, 24 yeah. eyes by kaisuke kanoshita
0: yeah no I've, I've i've seen that yeah it's a, it's a, a pretty great film but I, think, I, I mean one of the things i love about kind of japanese cinema in the 50s especially and it kind of goes back to kind of you know, the, the state of japan kind of post-world war Two and I, I was having a conversation with this, someone about it the other day and I, I said in many ways i think japan is almost kind of like a post-apocalyptic society in a way it was you know definitely destroyed during the war you know it's it's the only country that has ever had nuclear weapons used and never mind right. you know Millions of tons of fire bombs that kind of, you know, and it was occupied essentially, sure. wasn't you know, it, it? You know, and you, f- you basically have this kind of clinging to the old and the new, and the new mm-hmm. being really this kind of, I had a brilliant quote the other day, and he said, Most countries have two types of culture, their own and America's. And mm. J- Japan is, I think, the, you know, baseball's the number one sport there, isn't it? And it's this kind of like, it's a very strange, yeah. and I, I think lots of Japanese films in the 50s, they do reflect this sort of transitional period where you have you know the aspirations of the son you know he wants to go off and go to college and you know do well and then he has this kind of like millstone hanging around his neck which well your mum can't be lonely and you know your job's right. here to kind of keep the house going and things like that and it's this conflict you know, she might not be um uh yeah you know, the girl kind of Ko gets paired up with you know, she might be sort of like less reputable really but in in the grand scheme of things you know doesn't mean she's kind of a bad person or anything but it's kind of like culture says that she is and therefore it's yeah. somehow shameful but really isn't at all and i think that's perhaps bring you know bringing i can see it now of contemporary eyes i don't think there's anything any shame in being an actress you know so my friend you know some of my friends are and they get paid a pittance to go and be in yeah. wuthering heights but you don't look at them and say, Oh, I'm sorry, Monica, I can't come out of you this weekend because you're just a penniless actress. You know, it <laughs> just doesn't see it. You wouldn't do it. And I think you know, they obviously when you bring that kind of contemporary feeling towards it. But it's a strange. I, I think there is echoes of this kind of old and new culture in the film. Oh,
1: yeah. And I think, you know, of course, the, the Japanese New Wave, uh, the Sun Tribe films, was kind of that next generation. And Ozu, of course, was an old man. So he was definitely making. Old man movies for, for kind of an older audience, but you know the the breakaway, and then of course that just comes into full fruition in the early sixties with Suzuki and and uh, Imamura and and, and Kurahara and, and all these really radical uh, Japanese directors uh, uh, that that just kind of blew the lid off of things, and so there's a very clear generational divergence, and of course that laid the stage for you know Japanese culture that has profoundly impacted my own children, you know. I think about that. My, my grandfather fought in the Southern Pacific in World War II, you know, killing the Japs. And now, you know, his great-grandchildren, of course, he didn't live to see them grow up. They, they've they just embraced, you know, Japanese culture from video games to Pokemon to manga and anime. And it's just like, you know, uh, the footprint of Japanese culture. And I, and I love watching these Japanese films with my kids because they're into – the, the 20th century history of Japan as well they, they've watched mm. a lot of these these and of course my boys love the samurai films more than anything else It's because <laughs> of the you know ball busting action and all that you know, swords and everything else but but even you know my, my daughter she's a she's a, a an artist uh, she, she translate or not translate but she she does manga I mean she she um, does right. the, the the lettering for for these uh, Japanese comics as are translated into English her job is to put the lettering in on the uh, the, the translation so she loves uh, these films Films because they have a very manga esque quality to them in terms of uh, you know how, how manga isn't just about superheroes in Japan it's about everyday life and hmm. love and romance stories and stories about athletics and going to school and just you know living your life and, and so you know, Ozu really has kind of a lot of that sensibility to him as well kind of a long drawn out story that in his films kind of takes place all over you know uh, contemporary Japanese life. But uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of you know I was kind of talking uh, with Joachim before we started recording. But you know if Ozu was filming today, or uh, directors like Ozu might be more inclined to do television because the the narrower scope of 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 their storytelling doesn't require the the full scale cinematic you know s- screen size. You know, uh, yeah. Just, I- just a just an observation there.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, I, when I when I watched that, uh, rewatched um, Tokyo Story last year, I kind of rather um, sarcastically tweeted out that Ozu was the modern day. He, he reminded me of Mike Lee in that his yeah. Kind of films. Yeah, you know, <laughs> one of my biggest things about Mike Lee films is um, the rare occasion I have watched one at the cinema, I'm like, what? What's the difference between watching this on telly and? At the cinema mm. and, and like yeah i suppose it's a, good, a kind of a good segue really to kind of
2: get into the kind of the stylistics of
1: yes, yes. um
2: floating weeds because i wanted to uh touch on something uh quick oh come on. yeah because uh david you mentioned the slices of life uh and how osu tries to um look at different aspects and everyday stuff and I, I feel like uh the three man story that is uh, one of the things that holds me back from really enjoying the film is that there are too many uh, meandering scenes in the film. Where the little sort of comic scenes of the yeah.
1: actors when they're going about their visits to the beach and all that stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah, especially the story with the three men, and just it feels so uh, on the side of the real dramatic center of the film, and I, that that was one of the things that I felt was a bit extraneous.
1: Yeah, it's very disposable. I, you know, it's one of those things where maybe you know I don't know. I'm speculating here, but there may be a concession to the commercial uh, sensibilities of its times. Uh, I know that the 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 lead female actress was a pretty popular Japanese star, and I think the master himself was a pretty well regarded figure in terms of you know Japanese movie stars. Mm-hmm. And so maybe maybe some of these uh, those three actors they were bit players who had their own little sort of following and so you sort of had to create some scenes for them to kind of do their little funny man stuff. It's very mild humor I mean it's almost (laughs) kind of like you know whatever but you know sometimes we watch old movies from the 40s and 50s Hollywood movies where you know there's somebody just doing their little bit walk on part and in the day it meant a lot more because they were used to seeing this guy or this woman in some other roles and oh there they are you know (laughs) doing their little shtick so you know it, it's kind of lost on us because we don't they're not familiar faces to us so that might be what's going on there but you're right i, I think i saw in your notes that um maybe the original floating weeds uh packed a little bit more punch because it was more condensed and yeah. i think that's that's ve- they're very much true uh the original floating weeds is a is a grittier milieu it's it's a much more of a hard scrabble impoverished environment which you know was japan in the 1930s i mean the depression was in full swing japan had all sorts of economic and uh, social problems and a uh, story of floating weeds really the 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 quotient of anger and and disappointment i mean the you know there's kind of a brawl at the end between father and son and the son is just a little kid in floating weeds but when that the the big uh, dynamite takes place and the son discovers that who he thought was his uncle is really his dad. There's like a full-fledged tantrum. And, and if you've seen the, the Silent Ozu, I mean, there's some pretty gut-wrenching scenes of hmm. children acting out and getting spanked and, and yeah. abused by their parents. It's like, holy cow, that's, I mean, I work with abused kids, that's my profession. And I, those are hard for me to watch because I just recognize that this was probably happening you know, all over that society. Like, sadly, it happens all over the world to this day. But hmm. to see it just sort of thrown in your face like that uh, it's, it's, it's kind of tough yeah definitely
2: yeah and uh, a story of floating weeds is shorter as well just in terms of yes. running time it's 90 minutes mm-hmm. or something yep.
1: yeah so it gets right to it yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. I feel it's uh, the impression that I have is that it's less sort of meandering and gets more to the point of the film
1: and yeah how often do we see films that are nowadays two hours and 15 minutes long because that's supposed to say something as a statement when it's really so much padding to get Academy consideration. But, you know, the story itself, I I wish we had more 75-minute movies in the theaters. Hmm. I, 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 you know, just tell me the story. Yeah. Trim it away. You know, that that's the Brisson thing is just slice it down to its essentials. And I think Ozu probably, you know, he got caught up in the system a little bit, you could say.
0: I mean, I, 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 mean, saying that, I do, I did find the scene where, um, the, the woman, when the guy's going to have his, he's going to have a shave and he's kind of basically trying it on with the daughter. <laughs> and then the mother just grabs that cutthroat razor. You see it like really, oh, yeah. of, like just glaring at him, like, and I mean, that, it has those kind of moments. But I mean, I, I mean, I said it, but yeah, it does kind of like the, the tone of the film. And, and, you know, as I said about the, the music, it's just kind of like bright and breezy. And you have these kind of like comedic elements, I guess, to it. And then this kind of like quite sad, depressing story going on. And mm. I, I, that's perhaps, you know, the tonal shifts in these moments, I think, are perhaps where the problem lies with them for me. I was a bit sort of like, well, hang on a minute, in the one hand, you're wanting me to kind of fill this kind of really kind of sad, kind of depressing story of, you know, this guy who's kind of shunning his you know, responsibilities of father. and the next thing you're making me laugh with these kind of like, kind of, you know, comedic moments. I don't know, perhaps that's mm-hmm. what you might think about you, Kim, in terms of, you know, that they just don't work in that kind of regard.
2: Yeah. And it, uh, it's very much front-heavy with the comedic stuff and dramatic uh, stuff is more on the second half of the film. Yeah. So it, it feels like a film of two halves. But um, I didn't enjoy... Uh, I, f- I feel like it it is cohesive, but you could uh, take out these uh, select scenes with the three actors and it, it will flow more nicely, I feel.
0: I guess it... What, what's that quote? You know, No film, no good film is... What was it no good films long enough and no bad films short enough, whatever, you know, it's, it's about that kind of thing. You're sort of <laughs> yeah. watching it where you are thinking, you know, cause I kind of had that like expectation. My expectation for it was, I thought it'd be, you know, we were going to get this kind of like, you know, very much focused on the story of the master and kind of going on these little tangents, you know, yeah, I would have, perhaps, you know, they didn't need to be there perhaps, but like, it's like David says, you know, the, the context of them being there may be to kind of serve certain other kind of hmm. agendas as it were, but I think we should kind of move on yeah. now. Well,
1: Well, let me just say one more quick thing about the comedy elements. The film that Ozu did right before Floating Weeds was Good Morning. It's another early Criterion release, badly in need of an upgrade, I'll say. But that's a remake, another remake of I Was Born But. So I was born, but is kind of that story of the bratty kids who kind of go on a hunger strike and Ohio or a good morning is kind of the remake. And that was very much like Ozu's straight up comedy movie, if you will. I mean, comedy in in quotes, relativistic to, you know, Ozu is still Ozu. So you know, in some ways, maybe some of that you know crowd-pleasing comedy element which was very much cute impish children kind of spilled over into the first half floating weeds so th- that might be interesting and th- that's also kind of interesting that where was Ozuette in his career because he did two remakes right in a row you know in 1958 uh, 1959 uh, so i don't know if he was a little bit of a standstill or wanted to just kind of go back and resurrect some old material and Get it right or not, but then after that, his movies really become much more somber. You know, from late autumn, the end of summer, and an autumn afternoon. The last three, they're they're all pretty just heavy-hearted films. So you don't you get little whimsical moments, but nothing nearly as as comedic as what you saw in the first half here. Mm. So let's move on. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that's good. yeah. I just want to talk about the kind of the, the kind of the stylistic traits of this film because. Well, and, and Ozu in general, really, because um, this was, you know, one of his early color films. And when I was, when, when it when the film again, so many directors in this time, and especially I think of Kurosawa, they went wider and bigger, basically. And Ozu seemed to kind—he's of, he's gone in completely the opposite direction. He's, you know, he's kept this very tight frame. And he hasn't gone for the widescreen, and I, I I thought it was quite interesting, you know, kind of directors who don't do that. I mean, as what I'm preparing an episode actually from our podcast, and I was going to talk be talking about F, the you know, the epic cinema and you know, directors like Howard Hawks hated widescreen, and you know, they were kind quite, quite happy with this kind of you know the standard you know Academy ratio. And yeah, I, I do kind of I, I do really enjoy kind of directors who kind of you know tend to sort of don't go with the flow as it were and carry on doing their own thing and floating weeds i think is a stunningly beautiful film even for his standards Hmm.
1: well ozu stayed silent until like what 1936 37 so i mean he he did not go into sound movies until way after it was technologically you know feasible uh yeah, well, and and this is, I guess, one of the things worth mentioning. This is the I studio, not Shochiku, which was his kind of house studio for the great majority of his career. So, in some ways, there were some opportunities for him as he sort of stepped out of his usual routine to work with a different cinematographer. I, I don't remember the name. I'm not going to take the time to look it up. But he's the guy who did Rashomon.
2: Miyagawa, yeah. And-
1: yeah, Miguel. Right, and so and so. You know, this is a guy who definitely had his own credentials and credibility, and and you know had a very successful collaboration. As Robert Ebert, Roger Ebert says in his commentary, you can just take any frame from this film and have a very perfectly composed still image and that's completely true here and that's mostly true of all ozu films but the uh the work with the color and the the things in the background and the the frames within frames is just it 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 is it's back to that zen thing that i started with it's it's just beautiful just for the sake of its beauty Uh, the aesthetics are are sublime
2: and the, the world feels very much lived in the art direction, I think is mm-hmm. wonderful, because you have these torn-up posters everywhere. And it, yeah. it, you just feel like uh, this has been here a long time, and you can just sense that age in the city that just pops out from you, yeah.
1: And sake bottles yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all over. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, just going back to the, you know, the, the kind of the compositions, like I say, say, David, I think you can just, you can, I, I mean, I, I found myself, um, at times I was just completely missing what was going on. In the mm. film, because I'm just staring at the image for the, for its own aesthetic, um, you know, its own aesthetics quality, really. And it, it was quite strange because I was having this kind of debate in my head, you know, if you watch a film just because it looks pretty, is that, you know, I mean, the, the example I can use um, to the wonder, the new, the new Terrence Malick film where I went and watched it with someone after, though so like, oh, well, I was, just too, I was too distracted by how pretty it was to really care about what was going on. <laughs> and in a way, you sort of yeah. think, and I could see what they meant in a way, because I was sort of like, you know, I, I kind of found a balance of enjoying it for what it was and, you know, kind of looking at it like that. But I thought, when things are that good, and, you know, you know I've, I've actually made a short film now a few, a few months ago, and, you know, when I, I'm looking, you know, in the process of editing at the moment, and I'm, I'm looking at things like, God, you know, to, to to get that you know he must have had it so well planned and had spent so much time he's you know, thinking about the aesthetics of the film and you kind of look at your own work in comparison you think god i am really just a hack you know it's like <laughs> you sort of you know, you get in you know, guys like this in their their work is um well it's like roger You said you could take any frame out of this and you know you could legitimately hang it on your wall and people would say oh yeah, yeah. what an amazing photograph
2: that is it is extremely meticulous, the work that Ozu puts in it, because everything is locked down, so the camera never moves at all, and he just has to cut around the scene to uh, catch the entire scene, and it seems that there must have been an immense amount of planning in just how to stage the actors, and everything must be taken into consideration in this sort of uh, cinematography, yeah.
1: Oh, Ozu he called himself uh, the old tofu maker you know <laughs> he, he 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 knew one how to do one thing he made tofu hmm. and the, the what was a remarkable is that yeah you talk about precision and lockdown and the planning but he was he was very much uh, on schedule in fact his filmmaking techniques are are uh, astonishing he would he would have the whole film visualized once he had the script he would know what each scene was going to look like and and he could tell you almost to the day when this film was going to be done and how many shots it was going to take. There's no outtakes, there's no supplements to Ozu films in terms of deleted scenes. Hmm. What he meant to make is right there. And, and it's, it's, I mean, you know, of course the camera had to be positioned just so, but, but he did this so frequently, so regularly, so, you know, one, one film a year pretty much from the early 1950s all the way on through, uh, that, he just had a method and and he just cranked him out. so it never feels rushed or patched together, but again, perfectly disciplined in control and on time and on budget. It, so it's it's just astonishing the the mastery that that, that I guess that's maybe where you know veteran, Film critics, people who watch a lot of movies, just have to tip their hat to this guy because they know how difficult it really is to make a movie, despite the fact that there's so many thousands of hundreds of thousands of films out there. But to do it at this level and um, this proficiency is is quite marvelous.
2: I have the film on in the background now, and I'm also watching the scene uh, where the master is uh, kind of slapping around the uh, mm-hmm. the sumisiku or oh, sumiko character. Uh, and uh, you can see that the uh, editing, there's no eyeline matching between uh, the characters. Right. And he's not... He's, he breaks uh, rules. He breaks <laughs> rules. Yeah, well. There's no match cutting at all. And also in the in the opening scene where we cut from the tower to different angles of the tower, he's mm-hmm. kind of moving the tower around in the frame. And mm-hmm. it seems like you don't care about these conventional rules of Griffith and whatnot.
0: Well, I mean, I, right. find, but, I find the idea that there's rules in art almost offensive <laughs> mm-hmm. you know tell jackson pollock that there's rules you know I mean, yeah it, it, mm-hmm. it's really I, I find it slightly ridiculous in a way that you know i mean it, it's one of the it's one of the weird things about um kind of like Ozu because when you're watching them you the characters they, they stare sometimes directly into the camera
2: mm.
0: and it's yeah. inc- and, it, and it's like they're breaking the fourth wall when, I, I don't like it in film. The only exception I will give is um, Annie Hall of a film where it's allowed to break the fourth wall and it works for me. But I don't mm-hmm. like being kind of brought out, the rea- you know, brought out of the film and kind of made to feel that it is an artifice, but he gets away with it somehow because he would do a shot, reverse shot, or something like that, but it was just, he'll have the actor literally stare down the lens and it's quite disconcerting, but it's, you
1: can't. You, the, you, could, you get used to it uh, yeah. once you kind of yeah. get into his world. And I think there's a, a a portion of the Roger Ebert commentary where Ozu was kind of taken to task by somebody. I don't know if he was a, a younger film critic or a technician or a mm. student or whatever yeah. who said, uh, you "Film it the conventional way." And so actually Ozu did. I mean, he did show that he could follow the conventional cinematic rules and he could make films that way. He just didn't want to. So he filmed the scene both ways and replayed him in the rushes and said, so what do you think? And the student said, yeah, your way works better or works <laughs> fine. There's really no difference or there's, no, there's nothing lost there. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, Picasso, another great artist, you know, he could paint you a realistic portrait. If he wanted to do a, a lifelike painting, he can do that. But he, he's got the skills. He just exercises them in a, in a very uh, unique kind of iconoclastic way.
2: I wanted to ask you, David, because you've seen yeah. the previous two color films that Ozu made. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Is there any difference in how he utilizes color? Because the, um, I, first two was, were made with Atsuta Yuharu and this is made with Kazuya Megawa.
1: Well, you know, as I said earlier, the, the DVD of good morning really is, is poor. It's very faded looking. It's one of the first generation, you know, criterion DVDs. I don't know what the quality of the transfer was or the print that they were working with, but, uh, Floating weed seems to have a, a much darker palette. A lot of that, of course, happens because the scenes take place at night, hmm. so it's, it has more of a noirish kind of feel. And and speaking of noirish, I'll recommend from the Eclipse late Ozu set, Tokyo Twilight. That's a fantastic film. It's in black and white, but it's it's just one. I, if I could really point you guys toward uh, hmm. another really unheralded, underappreciated Ozu film, Tokyo Twilight, set. But anyways, yeah. So there's a there's a certain the 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 and maybe there's some contrast boosting or something going on, but the colors really pop out on this one. And then Mm if you go to the next film, uh, Late Autumn, also in that Late Ozu Eclipse set. Uh, It seems, again, to have a little bit more of a subdued palette. Uh, Again, I haven't seen him in the theater. I haven't seen, you know, archival prints where everything's kind of leveled out here. But I think uh, Floating Weeds definitely scores some extra points just in terms of the visual uh, intensity. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like he really plays a lot more there's it's much more apparent the the you know the red objects in the foreground and and the frames within frames um i'm looking at the scene where uh the son and and kayo are he's followed her to the theater at night and he's kind of all in black there you know his there's there's just Mm -hmm. a profile but you can't see his face as he's kind of getting ready to make his move on her those are some pretty dramatic flourishes uh visual effects almost you know in a sense that that you don't really see as often uh in some of the uh, later ozu films so i think i think uh floating weeds because of the, the the one-off uh collaboration with that cinematographer does kind of stand out in that way
2: hmm.
0: i think the thing i find ridiculously impressive about it all it always because uh, it was something we touched on earlier i just wanted to save it to now was ozu was an absolute ferocious boozer I mean, oh, yeah. we, we, I mean, we, we, I mean, Man. we're talking second part levels of booze <laughs> consumption yeah. here, and I mean, I, I mean, I went into work a few weeks ago with a mild hangover, and I was, I, I, in the end, I was just like, I'm going home. I'm useless. I I, I serve no purpose being here. I'm just, and, I, and that was, I'm that was just like a, a few years after. Work, like, well, but I mean, this guy, I mean, you know, he, he was, by all, and it's, it's not like you know a couple of beers. This was like a bottle of. I mean, as I, I understand, there's that. um I don't know if you know, but there's the opening shot where you see the um, lighthouse. Yeah, the sake bottle. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's like apparently that was like a little nod to sort of that you know our friend you know booze who's helped us kind of make this film. You know,
1: it's like <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he almost a, has a sort of inspirational, if not a sacramental, quality to it. I yeah. mean, because his scripts were all written. uh uh, wild, wild—not just drunk, but you're right, just ripped. You know, <laughs>
0: and you know, to be able to sort of create that, you know, and in yeah. a way, and I, I, was, I was wondering, you know, would, would he, you know, would he have been better if he wasn't drinking? You know, or was this, you know, did he need it, to you know, to, to kind of get in the zone, as it were? You know, obviously, well, right, it, never yeah. know.
1: But I mean, well, he only lived to be sixty years old, too. I don't know exactly what the—I think it was cancer of some sort—but uh, you know, he didn't live a long life, uh, so he kind of. You yeah know, used it used it up that way and i'm sure all that alcohol consumption did not do him <laughs> well <laughs> physically in the long run but it was clearly part of his his method and in, i guess in that sense you can't really quibble with the results
0: you, you, we talk about the film like in, in terms of halves and it really is visually a film of two halves isn't it because Mm-hmm. The first half is quite, you know, it's, you know, it's mostly set during the day. It's quite colourful. And like you said, it kind of goes into this sort of, um, much, I think, well, I, well, the film tonally shifts massively, doesn't it, in the second half? And it does become this kind of like darker, much more kind of, um, Almost kind of seedier looking film, I think, and I think m- my sensibilities are kind of. I'm more into kind of the latter half of the film in kind of terms of its visual style. But Is that something he does? Yeah, you know, you've seen before in his work, David, or is it, mm-hmm. is it just kind of floating weeds that's kind of has such a difference in kind of you know the the the, the half of the film?
1: Yeah, you know, I'd have to really probably be a little cautious to say uh, to to go too far because I. I, I this is Yeah, this film, having watched it closely enough to know I'm going to be podcasting about it, yeah, I definitely picked up on that tonal shift. I think the other films kind of um, follow some of that same lead in terms... Of, they, they tend to start off kind of light and casual, just kind of showing people going about their lives, and then the drama accumulates and builds. The tension becomes, you know, close to unbearable. And then the typical Ozu ending is a character just kind of sitting there staring off into space and then kind of bowing their head as it just kind of the enormity of it all just sort of weighs yeah. in but it's all very quiet you know that the famous scene at the end of um i think it's a uh, uh, late spring uh, i could be wrong but the father just peeling an apple just Nah. one long slow peel of the apple it just kind of sums it right up right there so I think they all sort of follow that similar trajectory where you know life is good in fact especially in that that, that motif of the child who's happy single living at home with the parent but forced by convention to kind of alter you know her way of life so that you know the, the customs can be upheld uh, you know it, it just kind of you know the, the pressure builds and then finally something snaps so that's that's really how the typical ozu film will go
0: Getting kind of getting on to the, end, the the kind of the ending of the film I mean what are your kind of thoughts on it? do you think it's earned do you think it, you know, do you think it's did, did it sati- do you think the ending is satisfactory for the story that's being told in a way
1: it's his endings I guess to kind of pick up where I just left off the, the, they always tend to end at a new sort of equilibrium. You know, there's, there's a status quo to open, uh, kind of a, a friction that occurs, and then we sort of leave off when things have sort of settled. We don't know how long that new norm is going to, to hold, but, uh, in, in this particular film, we have, uh, uh you know, the son with Kaio and, and the mother, and, and, and you kind of see, you know, obviously he's going to stay living with her. Uh, she's been kind of dropped from the company. And it's really just the master and uh, his his partner, his girlfriend, who are traveling to the next city where he's going to get a chance with this local empresario and maybe start from scratch. But the rest of the company has been disbanded. They're all going back to their kind of workaday lives. And, uh, you know maybe in some ways none the worse for the wear, but I'm sure probably harboring some disappointment. Hmm. Of course, a lot of them don't really know the full extent to how much they've been betrayed. They Hmm. just think, well, the show just didn't catch on. We ran out of money that, you know, we got short change from what was promised to us. Uh, That's just how it goes without necessarily knowing that they were kind of, you know, sold out uh, because the master had his own ulterior motives. Uh, But yeah, yeah. So, so the master and, and, uh, uh, what's her name who wants to help me out with her name and then uh, she's you know not yeah. only lighting his cigarette kind of grovelling mm. but uh pouring him sake and he's like okay well like, <laughs> i don't have much in this world but i got this you know yeah and
2: the biggest i guess this is where we get to the heart of my issue with the film because mm-hmm. i don't feel that i'm engaged with the characters and their struggles throughout the film i don't have any Emotion tied to it. So when it, mm-hmm. when it's building to this sort of climax, um, I don't, I'm not engaged with it. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not r- mm-hmm. really caught up in it. And that, that is the biggest problem. Maybe because we spend so much time with other characters other than the master and some of those actors portraying those characters are not particularly talented especially his son i think he's very very wooden in his performance mm-hmm. and i just don't feel any chemistry between uh, the son and this young girl kaiju uh, to be honest though i mean i i, I there's a lot
0: of films that I, and you know, it's like the romance in casablanca for example between rick and what's her name is it ava the Elsa? Elsa? Elsa, that's it, yeah. Elsa, I mean, yeah. I've never, I mean, I love Casablanca, I think it's a great film, but I've never quite seen where, I, I don't, I've never ever felt the romance between those two, you know, you have those flashbacks, I've never kind of thought, oh, that's clearly the love of his life, and I think a lot of films for that time, I think the reason why characters fall love <laughs> is because the screenplay tells them to, and I yeah. don't think they're necessary. Well, I if, think... If they say, oh, they're in love, you're meant to go, oh, okay, well, they're in love, and I, I yeah, yeah. God, I'm not trying. You know, I'm trying to defend it a little bit there. I think it's sort of that's mm. more yeah. to do with the time than <laughs> you know. Than
2: yeah, but so he seems to be like he's a, he's building to this climax, and I've read reviews mm-hmm. that saying it's not is is not this powerful climax, and that is what is so good about it. But it feels to me like he is actually attempting to achieve this powerful climax because I feel he's forcing it into. Uh, this dramatic turn in the film where everything is coming to a big halt and there's this big confrontation and lots of emotions under the surface. But I'm not really, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not really caring about what the outcome is going to be. And maybe, maybe it's the observational style that is just keeping me very at bay and leaving me to watch the scenes rather than engage with it. I don't know. Like, I mean, I I think that I mean what I did actually really like
0: about the ending. I think that there's there's lots of kind of possibilities hinted at. You know, it mm. might work all right. It might things might work out for the son and Kate. It might work out. It might work out for the master and his mistress. Probably won't because we know he's back here. You know, we know his history. We know this guy's like they're going to go somewhere else. Kind of you know, like carry on floating as it were. And I, I quite like that. I don't I don't um when it comes to films, I don't necessarily need you know I, I don't need resolution. The some you know. The way yeah, some I'm,
2: people do, yeah, I'm not. I'm not really talking about the open-ended structure. It's just that the uh, when it reaches this height of the drama, it's it just falls kind of flat to me. But uh, I'm with you on the like the open-ended structure. I like that there's possibilities and we're left to kind of wonder where this film is going to go next. But it's just that the the confrontation it just doesn't carry any weight to me.
1: Well, the fact that the master seems to me to be nearly twice the age of his <laughs> yeah. mistress it, it, it kind of goes back to casablanca like you know ingrid bergman could definitely do better than humphrey Bogart. <laughs> yeah, <I think>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and same with the mistress here like you know she's got to realize that she's kind of hooked herself up to kind of a loser yeah. ultimately and that she's cap- I mean, maybe she was a, a common street whore in the beginning and maybe she's you know been elevated to a slightly better place in life but don't stop climbing girl but just don't feel Mm. like you got to take this guy along with you she's you know and again that's maybe again from a 21st century post-feminist uh Mm. you know perspective yeah and i also know that you know women and and men they 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 love who they love and sometimes objectively speaking you can say oh (laughs) you know you're better than him you know you you know just just hold your horses don't commit yourself so much uh so I'll say this another benefit of a story of floating weeds earlier is that the, the master character in that film is a lot more of a charismatic. I did. I, I will agree with you here. Joachim, is that the master here doesn't strike me as much of a, uh, a guy that I can, you know, sort of wink at or get alongside. Yeah. He's just kind of an old has been, uh, Hmm. whereas, uh, uh, the, the actor uh, who was kind of Ozu's staple uh, back in, in the 30s, uh, Sakamoto, I think is his name, I can't remember now, but uh, he, he was a great uh, uh, Kachi was his his character's name in most of these films, and he's a very winsome personality, so there's a little bit more of that chemistry going on. I mean, he's a little bit more mischievous, and he's like, oh, you dirty son of a bitch, <laughs> but you still like the guy. <laughs> you know So you sort of get, you, he, he kind of plays you both ways, whereas this guy I don't think really has a whole lot in terms of charisma. You know, mm. he's just a born manipulator and that's about it.
0: Yeah, He's, he's, he's not Alfie, is he? He's not, you know, he's not, yeah. winking, he's yeah. not winking at you saying, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, come on. it's all a bit of fun. Well, he doesn't, he yeah. doesn't have that sort of, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't, he, he doesn't kind of endear himself to, I think, yeah, right. I see what you mean.
1: Well, in the film, I, uh, a couple weeks ago i talked about the um purple noon uh the ta- the talented mr ripley with oh, the criterion yeah. cast guys and that's another example of a really uh devious nasty person that you just you, you like him because he's Alain delon you know yeah, <laughs> but he's exactly. a killer and, and he, but he's just so suave and so cool in that role that it's like you sort of hope he gets away with it you know yeah. and and uh so sometimes that sort of anti-hero thing uh, works very well when when the uh when the the protagonist sort of has that combination of of charm and and, and villainy you know kind of working all at the same time
0: hmm. it's a strange way I, I think I' know, I know like, I know people have seen floating weeds and ab- abjectly hated it and they were kind of saying well you know, it does they want some sort of um I suppose a harsher penalty, really, for the master. You know, yeah. they want to see him like humiliated yeah. even more, or you know. So, and oh, he's it,
1: got it coming. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, it's like you know, it's yeah. like karma. You know, he'll go somewhere else and he'll end up cheating with someone's wife, and you know, something will happen to him. Yeah, I, let's be honest, he's not going to be kind of retiring anytime soon to a huge house, having no. made millions, is it? You know, it's a pretty no. sad life he has in front of him. And you know, I'm all right with films when they do that, and I, I <laughs> uh, you know, I, I did to be honest, I. I didn't have any kind of problem with it. I just sort of thought really, you know, kind of to kind of echo what David said, that that's kind of life really, you know, it's not about the kind of the happy endings and the sort of the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the moral lessons being dished out. And I, you know, I, I'm quite pleased in a way that Ozu doesn't kind of then sort of start preaching to us saying, look, you know, if you're bad and, you know, you, you don't kind of take on your responsibilities, the awful things happen." you sort of kind of lets it, just shows us what's happening and then says, well, there you go, really. Thanks very much. See you later. And I you know. I, for one, I quite, I I, I like that in the film, to be honest with you. I think it's a kind of, like I said, it it seems more real to me than kind of trying to attach any kind of deeper meaning to it.
1: Hmm. And there's kind of a heaviness in that the guy recognizes he really has, you know, irreparably harmed his relationship with this, his son, who at least he had the ruse of being his uncle, you know, and he wanted to preserve that. And events really did spin out of control so even though he's you know you know he's got his mistress and she's pouring him his drinks and he's on the train to the next place you know he he leaves us a
2: defeated man
1: he he really is i mean so he really has paid a terrible price and to the extent that any of us have sort of those regrets about situations that we really did mess up from years past in our Hmm. life that's i think where the empathy can kind of kick in. Yeah. Not that you feel bad for him, but you can recognize yeah, it really sucks to have those un un you know, uh, un- irreparable mistakes that that will just linger with you until your dying breath, you know. Yeah. And that's kind of his that's his that's his dilemma.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, David, just coming out the end of a seven-year relationship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah,
1: thanks for twisting the knife. <laughs> just just uh pushing it in just that yeah. little extra oh, quarter oh, of oh, an I've inch. Sat <laughs>
0: I've got two tickets for Bruce Springsteen next week.
1: <laughs> Who well, and, and that's the thing. And that's part of Ozu's commentary is that we, we have to have those little coping mechanisms. and we, we can't just let the regrets crush us and cave in. Even when you look at a character who's fundamentally as unsympathetic as the master, he's still a human being who's got to find his next thing to do in life yeah as as we all do and and that's that is that is our thing in common is that everybody has to carry that baggage around acknowledging it somehow but also not living under its weight perpetually because life doesn't really allow us that luxury of just wallowing in remorse
2: hmm.
0: i mean yeah just kind of like summing up and i i i'm hoping for me this is going to be well i definitely think it's the start of a new kind of dawn with me and ozu i think we're going to get on a lot better after this and yeah. i think i can see myself going back to this film quite a lot and kind of enjoying it for its kind of like nuances i mean david where, where do you kind of where do you put this film in kind of terms of his kind of body of work you know, how, how well important is it to you
1: yeah having gone back to it for the first time since uh, i reviewed it on my blog which was back in uh 2011 so june twelfth, 2011 almost uh, uh two years ago to this day is when i posted my review of floating weed so this is like i say i've made my way all the way through the end of ozu but haven't really done a systematic rewatch. i, I rewatched late spring after it came out on blu-ray a while back um i'm waiting for the upgrade of tokyo story someday to kind of go back to that mm. um but i'd say this definitely ranks up there and then of course watching a few of those later ozu films so the last couple nights just to kind of put this film in its context it, to me i guess i would put uh, this film and, and others of this era if you think about maybe a musical artist whether your band is whatever pink floyd led zeppelin or or something more radiohead whoever whatever artist you want to name you're going to have those those albums that are just like monumental, like that that established not just their relationship but your love of that band. And then there's gonna be these other works that are like, well it's good, but it's not like their best stuff, but it's still worth listening to just to see what they did this time out. Hmm. And and maybe Floating Weeds, you know, for some people is like right up there at the pinnacle. I think I think I like uh, uh the the end of summer, late autumn and on autumn afternoon, that final trilogy and those Noriko films. I'd put those those three trios of films ahead of Floating Weeds and then those early silence as well, I think, uh, have their own charm and power to them. But Floating Weeds is kind of, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, maybe it's the, it's Pink Floyd's animals, you know, yeah. compared to Dark Side of the Moon or something. I don't know, just kind of pulling it off the top of my head. Uh, it's, it's, it's a significant work. I wouldn't put it at the very top of my. Ozu favorites but because it has some unique characteristics to it uh, it stands out in that regard
2: I definitely have a feeling that I will return to it again after I've watched some more Ozu films mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and gain an appreciation for just the the entire world that he creates and just going back to these familiar characters and I think that will enhance my experience of the film and I really want to get uh, Ebert's commentary on the uh, film, listen to that one on the Criterion edition, because yeah. I think that his insights will provide some uh, extra information for me. Yeah.
1: That, If I can comment on that really quickly, um, Ebert's commentary really is, that does make this particular set from Criterion a perfect entry point into Ozu, because really what Ebert's doing is giving you kind of a, a, a visitor's guide, an orientation mm. to Ozu. He spends a lot of time really talking about what's on the screen, so you almost lose track of the story. So you really want to watch the film as a film before you get into the commentary track and maybe even watch it you know, once or twice. But but when you get to the, o, the Ebert commentary, it'll really help you just make sense of what Ozu's coming at you. If, if you haven't seen this stuff before, because he does approach the viewer so differently than almost any other director that you really need somebody to kind of hold your hand and guide you through it yeah not to be too condescending about it, but Ebert does a masterful job of helping you kind of get acclimated to this different environment
0: yeah i mean i've, I've i stupidly enough actually I completely forgot this film was in the criterion collection so mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't go back and i i have i mean i've, I've 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 seen it before, obviously, but I I didn't go back and listen to the ebook commentary. But I'm definitely going to check it out now because I've got the disc sort of looking at me on the on the shelf, as it were. But I mean, just going talking about this kind of Masters Cinema release, actually. What, what yes. You, I mean, have you actually picked this one up as well, David, or have you just no? You, you know, you know I,
1: I have to say very very humbly, I have never even held a Masters of Cinema release in my hands. They just don't <laughs> they don't sell them here at the stores. I don't have. I've got two Blu-ray players. They're both you know region A locked. So um, and it's I'm. Really, I'm kind of like the opium addict, and you guys are like the meth heads saying, hey, "Try this out." <laughs> okay. It's like, hey, I, my my hab- my criterion habits kind of enough right now, but, <laughs> but thanks anyway. <laughs> no, I mean uh,
0: it's uh, it's a yeah. pretty I mean it's a pretty decent. Um, blu-ray transfer i think you've got to have kind of yeah. expectations i don't think they're kind of the this isn't technicolor is it you know it's not sort of you know it, it, it's not eye-poppingly stunning you know and i i think for a blue i mean i thought it looked pretty good um and especially well i think there's a couple of issues with the sound did you not notice that as well Joachim? kim there's a there's a bit of popping isn't there and quite yeah. some crackles and stuff
2: yeah especially uh, in the opening and the end credits where the music is starting to swell you can definitely hear some crackles in the sound and also the um the colors they seem to be like i don't know what the technical term is but they they're vibrating sort of mm. so they they go like darker lighter darker lighter in the fast motion it's ever so slightly but you can sort of see it uh, i don't know if you noticed it i didn't to be honest with you i, I didn't i didn't see that at the, all, the all other I'm, thing I, I noticed was that on after about 20 minutes into the film each time there's a cut the frame it sort of jitters about for one or two frames it sort of moves so you can see that uh, the entire picture is slided slightly towards the left and down or something in the last two frames of each edit and it's pretty consistent throughout the film after the, about the 20 minute mark you uh, know I noticed it and it, it's quite distracting if you're not really enveloped in the film as I wasn't so <laughs> I kind of mm. noticed it throughout the film Oh, it's a shame. I mean, I was too
0: busy gawping at the compositions <laughs> to sort of notice the the kind of things. But I mean,
2: it's again, it's one of these ones
0: where I, I, I think they have to do best. They have to do what they do with you know, with, with what's there, basically. I mean, yeah. I, we've discussed it many times before. I don't like it when they kind of really try and kind of artificially kind of spruce these things up too much no, no. I, you know i don't mind a bit of crackling on the soundtrack or you know a bit of damage to the print Yeah, you know, as long as it's kind of they make the best of what's there and i think this certainly does it um extras wise as well the essay i thought was pretty brilliant actually and um mm. obviously you get the, the kind the, essay. yeah yeah and you know the kind of the well the, the, the rather boozy entries from um <laughs> <Ozie's>, uh diary <laughs> which you know kind of like again i think it's just it just it highlights the kind of how impressive the kind of uh you yeah, know, an artist he is kind of be in that condition, and still make films like this. But definitely, is it Region B or is it is it a multi-region one? This one I can't remember. Actually. Only Region B, yeah. Uh, right. So you probably have to wait for the Criterion one to come out then, because uh, I think I I should imagine this one will be on their list of ones to upgrade in the near future. I would have thought.
1: Yeah, I think, but I think there are others that are more, much more in need. This is, I mean, I've got the DVD going in the background as well, and I'm I'm very satisfied on a 46 inch monitor. I haven't really seen anything that really jars compared to uh good morning which i could go on quite a tangent about the complaints with that one and even tokyo story there's a lot of print damage that is on the official you know dvd that really needs to be cleaned up and i i know that most of ozu's famous major films have been released on blu-ray in the uk or elsewhere so uh I don't really know what the hang up is at Criterion, uh, but I would hope that they're going to really try to get on this, especially for some of those earlier uh, titles that really would benefit quite a bit. I mean, the the transfer from the early or the the upgrade from the early spring DVD to the uh, Blu-ray uh, is is quite significant, and they really did some beautiful cleanup work on some of the more crucial scenes that had lines running through them, you know, vertical top to the bottom of the screen for several minutes and were really distracting. So. So, uh, you know, uh, by comparison, uh, Floating Weeds is a very nice, uh, nice addition on DVD only.
0: So, to be honest, David, how much, how, how much um, upgrading are you be doing on your Criterion collection? Is this the new addiction coming in? Is it is
1: the? Uh... Oh well, you know, I pretty much do the Blu-ray upgrades when they're released. So I've got this big old stack of, of <laughs> double-dip DVDs yeah, yeah, yeah. now that I kind of <laughs> wonder what am I going to do with those, but I can't quite bring myself to drop them either. <laughs> you know, they my tough babies.
0: Und- I know. It's the same thing with Master Cinema. I mean, I collected all of these on TV. I mean, the the the, the worst story I have from Master Cinema is buying Sunrise three times and never watching <laughs> it. And I bought the first I <laughs> bought the first edition yeah. DVD, like this yeah. re-release, a double edition, and they brought out the Blu-ray and I bought them all. And I just stood there and I thought, this is just pathetic. you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, when people start saying, "Well, I sure wish they would release Eclipse on Blu-ray," I'm thinking, "Don't you dare!" <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> please, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah, have mercy, right? Yeah, yeah no,
0: no, no, it's yeah. a like Dave. Before we go, can you just tell us where we can find all I mean, the thing? But can we have like yeah. email addresses and things like that, and uh, where the yeah. blogs? My, are
1: my my blog is called Criterion Reflections. If you just you know put that in your search engine, that you know that'll get you there. But the address is Criterion Reflections, all in word dot blogspot.com just plain old blogger blog you know nothing fancy I write for criterioncast.com uh, my journey through the eclipse series and I'm doing a little bit more of occasional podcasting as well as the one-off reviews for You know, promos and DVDs and Blu-rays that uh, Ryan sends me out of the graciousness and generosity of his heart. Um, And the Eclipse viewer will be making its return soon. So uh, hold me to it, folks. And uh, I also, you can follow me on Facebook at Criterion Reflections. I have a little Facebook page I'll sometimes post. Little odds and ends there, posters and things like that. And, uh, and Twitter, Criterion Refs, R E F S, is my Twitter handle there. Uh, so, and if you want to follow me on Facebook as Dave Blakesley, uh, I'll take your friend request that way too. So, those are the ways to get a hold of me.
2: Brilliant stuff, Joachim. Where can you find us? You can find us at moccast.plugspot.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, just search for The Masters of Cinema Cast. And you can also send us an email at mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com. And please, uh, we've asked about this uh, several times, but iTunes reviews, they help very much in just making the word uh, go a little further out there.
0: Yeah, I'll pay people to put reviews. I'm not, <laughs> going to, I'm, not, I'm not going to tell you how much I'll pay you, but if you, if you put a review and then email me, I'll send you some money. I'm not yeah. telling you how much it's going to be, so it might not be that much. But anyway, uh, you can find me, um, uh, my other podcast, 24framescast.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at 24framescast. You can email me, 24framescast at gmail.com. David, thank you so much for coming on board with today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Really enjoy it, guys. And uh, hey, I'll do this again sometime if you want me
0: brilliant definitely. stuff we will definitely have you back and that's gonna be it for us we'll be uh, back with a new episode very very soon many thanks for listening and bye <laughs>